Welcome to Paths Less Trodden Interviews with me, Daniel Ross. This is a series of interviews about Paths Less Trodden, discussions with people who fulfil their ambitions where others have feared to tread. I'm interviewing entrepreneurs, investors, writers, adventurers and anyone who's carving out the future a little differently. Paths Less Trodden is brought to you by Tsepo, one of South Africa's most exciting and sought-after fashion brands. Tsepo Malala's story Values and life philosophy are a perfect match for everything that I'm striving to show in these podcasts. From the most humble beginnings, Tsepo, meaning hope, the self-taught stylist and designer, has built his business from the ground up and is recognised as one of South Africa's hippest denim brands. He is a born fighter and entrepreneur of the best kind. Follow his rise to international stardom on Twitter and Instagram at Seppo Jeans, in both cases that's spelt T-S-H-E-P-O. Follow the celebrities and tastemakers who love him by checking out the beautiful presidential slim fit jeans at seppo.shop. Today my guest is George Calhoun. George is the executive director of the Hanlon Financial Systems Research Centre at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, where he focuses on quantitative finance programmes. He's now also the co-principal for a recently awarded planning grant from the National Science Foundation to create an industry university research centre focused on fintech. George is also the author of several books, writes frequently for Forbes magazine on finance, with a particular interest in China. That's where today's conversation takes us. I really hope you enjoy. If you do, please press the subscribe button on Apple or follow in Spotify. You can also subscribe to my newsletter where you can find these recordings, the written transcript and other pieces. That's at danielsjross.substack.com. So George, it's great to have you along today. Being immersed in fintech myself, I enjoy your writing for Forbes and in particular on China and the story of Alibaba. You have become, I think, the go-to source for intelligence, insight and dare I say gossip. And so with Jack Ma's recent unexplained disappearance, you know, with the very foundations of his Alibaba empire crumbling under the weight of his government's axe, this is a tense, unusual and curious time in China. And let's remember, Alibaba is an organization of international renown. It's a great symbol of the Chinese internet boom. It's finder and icon. And so the destruction we're witnessing has wider consequences. I was going to say the, the world is watching, but I'm not so sure that it is. And that's really the subject that we're mainly going to explore today. But before we finish, I do also want to touch on some other exciting fintech news, which you're also at the center of, George, and that's your university, the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, has just been awarded a major grant from the US National Science Foundation to create a new national research center on fintechs. I want to hear about that and the kinds of collaborations you're planning with industry students and policymakers. Let's start, okay. let's start however, uh, with China. And for those of us uh, uninitiated, like a good detective, George, can you give us a very brief chronology of events which have led to the breakdown of a once great empire at one moment, preparing for the groundbreaking IPO of the Ant Group, the largest fintech company in the world, and then came the speech which changed everything? Well, 
So uh, I think you start with uh, Alibaba and Jack Ma, and uh, in a fairly short period of time, historically, uh, Alibaba has become, became, oh, certainly one of the top 10 uh, most valuable companies uh, in the world by market cap uh, traded in the New York Exchange. It um, represented a tremendous uh, dynamism of innovation in a whole range of things. Basically, you start by saying it's the Amazon of China, but um, it really kind of goes beyond there. It's been uh, pushing hard into fintech for a number of years, which Amazon is, is, is probably a little bit behind in that regard. And uh, they spun out this company called the Ant Group uh, a couple of years back, and Ant then in turn became a very dynamic, innovative uh, entity that started adding a lot of different lines of business in the fintech or financial services area. They became a, not just a, a payments company, but they became a, a money market fund in China. And uh, within a couple of years, they were suddenly the largest money market fund in the world. They were they had uh, surpassed Vanguard and Fidelity and J.P. Morgan and the other giants that have been at it for decades. They fell back a little bit because uh, the the government took notice and started to rein them in. But they still had created a major new business uh, almost overnight. Uh, they moved into insurance. They moved into credit rating. They moved into uh, then the extension of credit. And that, in my opinion, was really where the risk factors began to pile up in the minds of the regulators because they were kind of in the business um, not dissimilar to what happened in the uh, subprime crisis in the United States where you had at that time mortgage originators who would you still have them but they're now more better regulated mortgage originators that would go out and and sign up people for mortgages and then sell the mortgages on down the pike to investors in various packages. And in the U.S., this didn't turn out so well in the subprime crisis because um, the, the original risk uh, assessment was not attached to the investment as it went down the road. You could make a case that Ant Group was starting to move in a similar direction, generating consumer credit, but passing off the risk of that credit to some of their banking, the traditional banks in China that were their partners. It's a way of saying that there was a rationale, I think, for a regulatory oversight, a regulatory move to uh, kind of address some of the developments. But that's always true with technology. You know, with disruptive technology, people are going to innovate. Those innovations will ex escape from the regulatory framework that was put in place based upon a previous uh, understanding of what the technological landscape was. And, and, tech and the regulators and the technologists are going to have this kind of tension going on. What um, what differed here was that the regulators um, moved in with really a pretty brutal process. Uh, they uh, essentially killed the, the ant was getting ready to do, Jack Ma was getting ready to do what would have been the world's largest uh, initial public offering ever. And it was going to be in China, which was going to be a, a milestone for the Chinese financial system. And basically about two days before this huge deal was set to go. The uh, regulators in Beijing uh, pulled the plug on it. And since that time, uh, Jack Ma has really kind of disappeared. And that's, I guess, the thrust of your question about him personally. But let me pause there and ask you to direct my 
my comments uh, in the direction you'd like to go. Well, he Jack Ma made a speech uh, last October, which seemed to precipitate some of the regulatory uh, changes that you highlight. How critical was that speech, or was it a tipping point for what was actually happening already uh, with the what they might call in quotes the cyberspace regulator? Well, let, let's contextualize Jack Ma a bit. He is um, was at the time the richest man in China. He is uh, the most widely recognized Chinese person, much more so than Xi Jinping or any other living Chinese, according to various polls. He is a showman. He was uh, and and uh, a brilliant one, on on a par with uh, a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. And I think that's the right way to think about him. He's fluent in English, fluent in Chinese, which is. Um, gives him the ability to cross a lot of the boundaries in the, in the global networks. And, you know, to, to say he's a showman doesn't even do him justice. If you uh, want a, a treat, you go on YouTube and look up uh, some of the clips of the Alibaba uh, company parties that he has held. And by party, I mean stadium-sized. You go into uh, a stadium with 60,000 employees of Alibaba, and he comes on, uh, dressed as a rock and roll star with a guitar and a wig and uh, does a, a Michael Jackson dance and uh, enters and leaves on a motorcycle and sings a song uh, to the to the crowd. I mean, it's amazing, actually, to see him. So he was he's a celebrity, I would say a genius, an innovative genius and uh, a representative of, of what China is becoming and wants to become in many ways. So to suddenly throw the blanket over him and make him disappear is an extraordinary event. And, you know, I, I compare it to what would, what would be the reaction in the United States if um, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk suddenly disappeared because there was some uh, government concern about uh, antitrust or whatever it might be. The, the uh, speech you're referring to was on October 27th. Uh, he made Jack, Jack was made lots of speeches. I mean, he was a very outspoken person. And, and I think he probably had a history of uh, provocative statements that uh, ran up to this. But on October 27th, he made a speech to a group of uh, Chinese financial executives and regulators and uh, was quite critical of their uh, slow moving, in his view, uh, outdated uh, approach to regulation. I think if you look at the speech, he didn't say anything that was actually all that unusual or controversial, the sort of thing that uh, you might read in a lot of uh, reviews of the Chinese regulatory or financial system. And I think the question on that speech is, did he do it knowing what he was doing? And I don't know the answer to that. I've talked to people that are more familiar with this kind of situation in China who would say to you that, of course he did, that he had to know that word for word and that venue and the things he was saying and the audience he was addressing, that he had to know, and the context that his public offering was coming up within a week. You know, he could have waited a week to say the same things. Well, so I was just going to say that I think that's where the mystery begins, is what did he really intend from that speech? Was he naive in some sense? Uh, so the... Uh, I think the question is whether he knew what he was doing, whether he was caught by surprise. It's hard to believe 
it's hard to believe that he didn't know, but that's when the mystery, that's where the mystery begins. What did he know? Did he understand the uh, implications of making that kind of speech less than a week before this huge public offering where he obviously would want to have a supportive uh, Beijing, a supportive regulatory framework behind that type of uh, public offering. So, you know, I'll just take the conspiracy thought one step. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I'll take it one step and say that I have had people suggest that maybe he knew that the public offering itself was in trouble for various reasons, and I could go into that. And uh, he was giving uh, Beijing the opportunity, the pretext, to to pull the plug. That sounds a little crazy to me, but the whole thing is crazy. You know, he's now disappeared. And I can now, if you want me to go through the Sherlock Holmes routine, I can tell you what, what the little clues are as to his disappearance. Let's, 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 let's do that then. Give a, give a quick uh, view of some of the, the, the sightings and the theories. Well, first of all, he disappeared on that day from public view for about 90 days. Start with that. This is uh, an extremely public person, very recognizable physically. He's a, a man that has a very recognizable uh, appearance. And he's living in a country with one billion smartphones, all camera equipped, one billion smartphones. And nobody saw him in a way that they could snap a quick picture or, and publish it online, whatever, for 90 days. At the 90th day, uh, more or less, the government publishes an, a 46-second video clip of Jack Ma addressing purportedly a group of rural school teachers somewhere deep in the, the rural heart of China, talking for 46 seconds about educational philosophy, I guess you might say, all in Chinese, no indication of, of where or when he is, he's speaking, no reference to Alibaba, no reference to the IPO or anything else contemporary. And he's uh, sitting flat, without affect, and uh, very peculiar. I compared it to a hostage video, uh, and I, I think it's an apt comparison, frankly. That was the first sighting. A few weeks later, we got an article from Bloomberg, a Bloomberg reporter in China who says that she spoke to someone who claims they saw him playing golf on a golf course in southern China, in an island off southern China. She says, however, no one will confirm this. Nobody will go on the record. Uh, the person that, she, that gave her the information refuses to be identified. She contacted the, uh, to Alibaba, the golf course. Nobody would comment. So it's a very uncorroborated piece. Surprising that Bloomberg would run it, frankly. There was uh, related then uh, another conversation, Masayashi, if I'm saying his name right, son of uh, SoftBank, the head of SoftBank, which is the largest investor, the original backer, if you will, of uh, Alibaba. In his court, he's a public figure, of course, in Japan. He, in his quarterly conference, investor conference, he said that he had had a recent, uh, apparently, a text exchange with Jack Ma where they uh, talked about uh, Jack's new interest in artwork and sketching. Didn't say anything about any details of where or when, no information about the business, just that Jack was having a good time developing his artistic skills. Then uh, the next piece, <laughs> I mean, these are, these are amazing. The next piece uh, was a Financial Times piece 
where they somehow got through a third company access to the flight records of Jack's private plane, and they could track where it had been since the uh, the speech in October. And basically, it flew back and forth to Beijing a few times. Once again, no verification of Jack himself, no pictures, no indication of his personal whereabouts, but we know his plane zipped around a little bit. What was next? Um, then you had a the, the last two pieces. I can't remember which one came first, but one of them was there was a report that he appeared at Alibaba headquarters and uh, was supposedly photographed, one photograph, sort of from a distance. And this photograph was shown to Reuters, the news agency, but that's it, not published, not uh, turned over to anybody that you can't, the photograph is not available to look at. And the uh, person that took the photograph refused to be identified and uh, nobody would make it, none of the official entities involved would make any comment about it. And then uh, the most amazing in a way, you shift gears to Russia and of all people, Vladimir Putin is having a, is hosting a uh, video and hybrid on in live conference, evidently, of the Russian Geographical Society, a bunch of uh, people interested in Russian geography and environmental issues in Russia and so forth. And Putin is there on a big screen, and he's running the show. It's all very benign. And around him, circling are eight or nine little tiles in the screen with different people. And one of them is Jack Ma, just sitting there for an hour and a half, says nothing, Nobody asks him any questions. He's not identified. He's not referred to, but there he is sitting there looking bored, as the New York Times said. So, you know, what do you make of all this? I don't know exactly. I mean, it, I guess you make, I guess you can assume he is alive. I mean, I, I never really would have thought that they would go that far, but they, uh, they must have him in some kind of, you know, house arrest of some sort would be my assumption at this point, or he has put himself in effect, under that type of lockdown. He's, he's decided he's just not going to be out there the way he normally was. Whether there is constraint involved, I don't know. But it is, I'll just go back again, the one billion smartphones in China. You know, nobody has seen him to quickly snap a picture, even if there are police around, even if there are handlers. You'd think somebody could quickly snap a picture, especially given you know, that picture probably has a, a dollar value, right? There, there's a, a huge audience of shareholders and journalists and well-wishers out there that would love to get a confirmation that Jack is okay and that uh, he's going to be back uh, in the saddle at some point. But, you know, here we are in July, and it's been October 27th was basically the last time that he was in public in a clearly at liberty. That's the mystery. And while all these sightings have occurred, there's been, in Beijing language, a rectification going on, as they say, or in other words, a reallocation or a slicing up of the empire to various curious parties. What, what do you think will be the likely impact on the Chinese economy with an Alibaba without Jack, both in absolute terms, but also thinking about the longer-term impact on what that means for Chinese entrepreneurship? That's the big question, I think. I mean, once you get past sort of the human story of Jack Ma, which I don't mean to minimize, but once you, you sort of step into the larger picture, 
you know, what is this going to do to the tech industry? And, and there are lots of other tech executives that have reduced their profile in some cases voluntarily, in some cases involuntarily over the last few years. And what is Beijing up to here? Are they in effect saying that they cannot tolerate the spirit uh, that animates this kind of disruptive innovation and they're going to try to um, bring it in line with their view of how things should run? If so, what will that do to the vitality of this trend in China? And will it hamper or hamstring the uh, the objective of China to be to achieve some kind of technological parity with the West. You know these guys are really smart. These Jack Ma's and the others that are out there, they've built incredible companies in a very short period of time. If you gave them their head, if you let them do what they can do, all right, maybe you you want to regulate some of the things around the edges. But if you basically allowed it to develop, I think China would be there within a fairly short period of time. But this kind of um, very harsh suppression of you know the key figures in the business, I just can't see that it's going to be anything but negative for China's strategic interest here in uh, achieving that technological parity. I was going to say the latest is the DD event, which I, I'm just about to post something on that on the Forbes column, which uh, as I have uh, sort of thought that through. What they're doing there is they're breaking the link with uh, the New York uh, exchanges for these Chinese companies. They're about $2 trillion worth of Chinese shares trading in New York, including Alibaba, including you know, a lot of the major companies. I think what it's uh, looking like is that Beijing has decided they're going to shut that down. The U.S., from its standpoint, uh, is is uh, moving in the same direction, but I think looks like China might want to preempt that. And these are big, big uh, changes, and I'm not sure they're uh, beneficial for the Chinese uh, strate- strategic objective uh, here. Yeah, I was, in fact, going to also mention the DD Group uh, intervention. And with that in mind, there just seems to me a rather glaring paradox in this behavior of the government, because how do they resolve this tension between desire for total control, but nevertheless being an international internet superpower. Because beyond, beyond the DD intervention, you know, the Chinese, quote, cyberspace regulator said that Chinese companies, I think with more than 1 million users now need to pass a security review to check that they're not passing user data to foreign regulators before listing overseas. So there's this whole new regulatory framework around tech, which shows that China really has no intention of allowing the US uh, to be the global regulator by default. But moreover, these power plays do nothing to establish China where one assumes they want to be as a as the global tech internet superpower, quite the opposite. Well, let me make the US case on that, uh, the regulation, not to say that it's completely correct. Uh, you know, that you accept every aspect of it, but it, I think, highlights what uh, the Chinese are up against. So the U.S. case is that we run our financial exchanges, hopefully with a very strong regulatory framework that ensures that the information that's available to investors is accurate, that it's been put together properly, and it's uh, transparent and, and generally available. And a big part of that is the financial audit process that results in every 90 days an update of the public company's financials that are published in the 10Q or the 10K forms. This is the standard uh, framework and has been for decades. And 
It's a good framework. I, I think most people would agree that the U.S. markets are well regulated in that regard with respect to the quality of the information that's available. Chinese companies that come on to the exchanges in New York, you would assume should follow the same, should, should adhere to the same regulatory framework. Every other country in the world, and I'm going to say, I think possible, with the possible ex- partial exception of Belgium, of all people, I don't know that story. But every other country, UK firms, Swedish firms that trade in New York, trade their ADRs in New York, they all comply with these requirements to trade in New York. And it's not a big deal. You're talking about just reviewing the audit procedures to make sure that the audit is is up to snuff. And China refuses. Chinese government refuses. I think the Chinese companies will be happy to do it, but the Chinese government refuses to allow them on the argument that they're, they would be exposing potentially national security secrets somehow by uh, letting uh, an audit review take place of, of their firm. I think that's ridiculous, but that's the position they've taken. And I think they're taking it because they, they really don't like the idea, they being the government in China, doesn't like the idea that New York is the preferred venue for trading for their big companies. They'd like to bring it all back and build up the Chinese regulatory system. Once again, I think they're doing it in a way that is going to be self-defeating or at least self-constraining. The Chinese financial system is not yet as mature as the U.S. markets. It's making good progress. Ten years down the road, it might be just on a par and people would be happy to list there or list in both places. You might have U.S. firms listing in China to access investors there. But you don't get there by declaring the Cold War. And that's what it seems to me is, is going on at the moment. And that's going to be the thrust of my DD piece uh, that I hope to publish today or tomorrow. Well, I look forward to that very much. And I, and I, and I fully agree with you. There is definitely self-sabotage going on here. And you mentioned just continuing the connection between China and the US, that if this were a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk story, the reaction would be markedly different. But why then do you think there's been this media silence over this story? Uh, that is our side of the mystery, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, where is the curiosity? Where is the sense that there is a story here that should be uh, investigated beyond you know talking to somebody who talked to somebody who says they saw Jack playing golf? You know, and that's it. And that is trumpeted as, oh, he's he's back. He's fine. He's playing golf somewhere. You know, that's Bloomberg. Bloomberg is a, a serious outfit. And, and for them to run an uncorroborated piece like that. But where's the New York Times? Where's the, you know, there, there are the, the Wall Street Journal there? There's an incuriosity that is puzzling to me. Why or what that's about? You know, maybe people just assume, uh, you know, to quote the old uh, Jack Nicholson movie, it's Chinatown. You know, don't don't ask too many questions. It's 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 China. This is what they do. Maybe that's all it is, or maybe that's that's what uh, maybe they just have um, an aversion to uh, to getting in trouble by digging too deeply into this story too. I don't know, but uh, it is it is puzzling to me. Now I've been told that because I've written a couple of these things, that the next time I apply for a visa to China, I'm going to get a uh, a turndown. So we'll see. Maybe maybe they're right. That's not their jo- their job. Should be to well, I, either way, they'll have their eye on you. Yeah. <laughs> well. I hope I hope it's only from a distance and only the visa. I'm conscious that I I'm asking you questions which really no one has the answer to, but nevertheless they're 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 fun questions to to tease out and and play with. But 
What's the future now for Jack? Is it complete ruin? Is it prison? Is it quite comfortable retirement? Could we even see a comeback? Where would you be placing your bets? So as to Jack's fate, uh, of course, I will confess I don't have any inside information. I have spoken with a, a fellow who uh, runs a service. He contacted me after the one of the pieces I did on Jack. Runs a service that is involved in helping people like Jack, although he's not a client of his, to develop escape plans, we could call them, or contingency plans. When things get too hot in the home country, you want to be able to have a place to land, have the ability to move assets, to move family, to... It all sounds very, very much, uh, you know, in the espionage kind of world that I am not a part of. But, you know, I guess this is, uh, this gentleman that I spoke with said he doesn't have a strong theory either, but he does say that uh, these guys, they know they're skating along thin ice and they take measures along the way. Jack has bought houses, I believe, in the United States, in New Zealand, I think in Singapore. There are, you know, certainly indications that he has had enough pre, you know, for a forethought to to be able to anticipate what might happen. He he said himself. I quoted it in the article a couple of years ago. He said, you know, of all the richest people in China, that none of them come to a happy ending. That's a, a quote he made. So I think he knew that at some point he might run afoul of this. And did he take measures to put himself in a safer place or to at least prepare a part of the process for doing that? I think you'd have to assume that he did, but whether he is out, you know, some of the speculation originally when he was missing for 90 days was that maybe he had gotten out of China and was in Singapore or in somewhere else uh, safe and sound. I, you know, it seems like that's probably not the case. As I said, whether he is in some kind of a house arrest or some version of the same thing that may be self-imposed, I, I don't really know. I don't have a, uh, I don't have inside knowledge of that. But, you know, I think it's going to take an evolution on the regulatory side, the government side, before he is allowed to rehabilitate himself. It may be that they have to finish the rectification, as you call it, as they call it, of the ant group, which is dividing up different pieces and constraining some and suppressing others and handing off others to to some of his former competitors. You know, maybe they have to complete all of that. Maybe they have to allow the public offering to come back online. You know, the, the rehabilitation process in uh, in these types of regimes is not something that I think we in the West understand all that well. We don't do that to people. You know, we have a legal process that's all pretty transparent and above board. That's not the case in this type of regime. I mean, I think in brief conclusion to this part of the story, it's sad, it's curious in equal measure, both on a human and a business level. And we wait with bated breath to see how it unfolds in the coming months is perhaps all there is to say. But it's fascinating to get your inside track on that story. Conscious of time, but as I said at the start, I'd like to wrap up with perhaps some more uplifting news and talk about the FinTech grant, which the National Science Foundation has bestowed on your university i just love you to share what you will be doing with the money and what exciting things we can expect over the coming year. Okay, well, the National Science Foundation is the premier agency of the U.S. federal government to develop and support advanced projects, advanced research in various areas of science and technology. They've been in business for decades, and they uh, 
do lots of different things in all sorts of different tech fields. About two years ago, they came to us, which first of all is unusual. Typically, you go to them and make a proposal and you hope you're in a very competitive process. You hope you may be approved. But they came to us and invited us with another university to make a, to consider making a proposal for a new research center in the financial world. The financial industry was not tip, traditionally viewed as a high-tech business. I mean, that sounds strange today, but if you go back 25 or 30 years, it was a very low-tech business. Everything was done by hand. You, know, you talk to a broker, the broker talked to a specialist, specialist talked, walked across the trading floor and, and made the trade, and it was all very cozy and expensive and handheld. That's, of course, now been completely taken over by electronic markets, high-speed trading. It's a totally different industry today, and that's happened in a relatively recent time frame. And I think the NSF and many other people are now recognizing that the financial world is a high-tech world now, just as much as Silicon Valley is. And so they invited us to consider making a proposal. We did that. The particular type of research center that they are supporting here is something called an Industry University Cooperative Research Center, which is specifically designed to bring universities and industry players in the relevant field together to define what the research agenda should be, what projects should be prioritized, and to promote the development of research that is going to be relevant and strategically significant for that field. That's a big deal. It's the first time that the NSF, that the U.S. federal government has ever really brought that focus to bear on what we would now call fintech, financial sciences and technologies. They just granted it the week before last. We just got the award approved. So we're standing at the threshold of, uh, of a, uh, a process that's going to take a long time. This is a 10-year project. That's uh, how they view it. Five years and then five. If you don't screw up, you get another five years. And they really want to see it even then take root as an institutional component and go beyond. And that's what there are about 80 of these types of centers that have been created in the United States in all sorts of different other fields. So they want to see this one take root and become a center that will be a leader in this field. We have about 20 industry partners that, that have signed up to give us letters of support, financial support as part of the proposal. There's some household names. I'm not going to name the names at the moment because we have to go through a process of approving press releases with each of them. But you can assume that uh, there's, I think, four of the major money center banks. There are some uh, significant exchanges, data suppliers, some very major companies, uh, technology companies that are that want to be part of this effort because they can see that fintech is going to be a major area of technology development. It will have strategic significance. And by the way, since you're in London, I'll mention that um, it's not unusual. We, we will be adding additional universities to this consortium, and it's not out of the question. It has been done, I should say, that non-U.S. universities can be brought into the consortium, into this type of consortium. And we've had discussions with two universities in the U.K. that seem, actually three now, that seem to be pretty interested. So, you know, we're, we're early days in all this, but uh, I would love to get a uh, London footprint because of London's role as the other major financial center of the world, New York and London, obviously, and, um, you know, and go from there.
this is something that's going to develop uh, over a multi-year period. I think we'll be doing uh, a lot more press about it and trying to launch it in the fall uh, with our industry partners. So, you know, stand by for, for news on that. It's a big deal. It's a very big deal for us at, at our university, at Stevens Institute of Technology. And as our president, president of our university said, it's going to be a, a transformative event for the industry as well. Financial industry has not traditionally had this kind of relationship with academia. They've tended to have individual consulting type projects. They have not had the type of relationship that, say, the biomedical industry has with academics in the U.S. or the defense industry has with academia in the U.S. And I think that's what's in the offing here is a development along those lines. And, and this is going to be in the forefront of that. Well, this is definitely transformative, and it's it's really exciting that the impact of it seems like it has the potential to ripple beyond your shores and indeed come to where I am and in London. And with that in mind, I mean, I'd like to think that my listenership is reasonably international, but for those of us who are here in the UK or really anywhere listening, how can people get involved with this, with this activity or with the effort that you've just outlined if they're so inclined? Well, my role in this is going to be the so-called managing director, which means that I will be responsible for interfacing with the uh, industry partners or others that want to be part of the consortium. There are other people in, in our structure who are more, let's say, on the scientific side. So my point is, uh, you can reach out to me. I'm probably the best initial point of contact for that. Daniel, I'm going to assume perhaps you'll be able to supply my uh, my contact information in connection with this. I won't repeat it unless you want me to right now. So yeah, that I'm, I'm happy to, to anyone that wants to reach out. I'm pretty good about responding to emails. We can take it from there. Absolutely. And more broadly, where do we go if we want to find out more about Stevens Institute and indeed yourself more broadly beyond, beyond this? Well, as to me, uh, you know, I would reference the Forbes uh, column that I try to do one a week. I've actually done two in the last three days because I'm getting ready to go on vacation. I've got to do my quota for the month of July. But that if you Google George Calhoun and Forbes, you'll get me there. And maybe again, you'll you'll provide the link. In terms of Stevens, you know, we have a website uh, like anybody, like any university, Stevens Institute of Technology, stevens.edu. It has pretty good uh, coverage of all of these things. We also have a, a research center, a, a pre-existing research center called the Hanlon Financial System Center, H-A-N-L-O-N. And if you... Uh, if you Google that, Hanlon Financial System Center, we have a pretty good, robust website there as well that has a lot of contact information, background material. Great. Well, on that note, George, thank you hugely for joining me and sharing your wisdom. We wait impatiently on Alibaba developments, and we look forward to hearing great new fintech stories coming from New Jersey. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>